I never really fully committed to staying for 34, almost 34 years in uniform. Even my older brother said, who came in through the ROTC too, when he got his fourth star, my older brother said, I think I'm going to make this a career. And I, I was at the same moment. Welcome to War Docs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand behind the scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, WarDocs has you covered. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. On this episode, we are privileged to welcome retired Army Lieutenant General Dr. Eric Schoomaker to Wardox. Dr. Schoomaker completed his internal medicine residency followed by fellowship training in hematology oncology at Duke University and also earned a PhD in human genetics from the University of Michigan. He received his MD degree at the University of Michigan and holds a master's in strategic studies from the U.S. Army War College. He has served in many positions in Army graduate medical education, including Director of Medical Education for the Office of the Surgeon General. He also was the Command Surgeon for the 5th Corps, as well as the U.S. Army Forces Command Surgeon. General Schoomaker has commanded multiple military treatment facilities, as well as being the Commander of the Army Research and Material Command and the 30th Medical Brigade in Germany. Ultimately, he served as the 42nd Surgeon General of the Army. You can read his full bio at wardoxpodcast.com. So today we're privileged to welcome the 42nd Surgeon General of the Army, retired Lieutenant General Eric Schoomaker to Wardox. Sir, thanks for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. It's really a pleasure and a privilege to be here. General Schoomaker, you completed your undergraduate education and medical school at the University of Michigan with your undergraduate degree in zoology and anthropology. What led you to pursue a military medicine as your career? Well, I come from a military family and I'm the second generation of what has now become a three-generation military family. My father was a career officer. He was an artilleryman, actually fought in three wars, World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. And I think you might even ask about later, my older brother became a career officer himself. I have a, We were from a family of, of uh, four boys. Uh, I have three brothers. And all of us were raised in the environment of performing some form of national service. And, and so national service was, I think, what guided us. That coupled with the fact that much like almost everybody, I don't know about you two, but the affordability of college has always been a problem for families of modest means. And with four boys and despite two working uh, parents, I think it was a, a foregone conclusion that we were going to have to help out. And one of the readily available means of that was to get a, a scholarship through the ROTC. So I, I was in the ROTC as an undergraduate starting in 1966 when I started college and <clears throat> finished that up with a commission in 1970. By 1970, despite our being in Vietnam, the war was winding down and the lieutenant pipeline was completely jammed. And so virtually my entire class was told to go find something different to do or come in do a couple months of active duty and then go out and into an active reserve time. So when when they approached me, by that time I had spent my my 17 years before going to college on army posts and around the military I had a pretty good idea what it did and I'd been to summer camp in the ROTC and I was I was tired of loud noises and I was tired of uh, being around the things that killed and killed you and I remember even in summer camp, there was this uh, day that we went by and saw the field medical tent. And here's this medical service corpsman at Indian Town Gap Military Reservation, now Fort Indian Town Gap up in Pennsylvania. And he's got a fan and he's reading the Wall Street Journal and he's got a coffee cup going. And I thought, hey, wait a minute. I just got through <laughs> shooting M14s and and 45 caliber pistols and sitting inside a tank that we just got taught could be turned into a wearing blend of death if you got hit by a heat round. This looks like a much better way of life. That coupled with having a mom who was a biology teacher and an attraction to 
to science and medicine, I think really got me there. I started working in hospitals as an undergraduate, as an extra job, even as a freshman. So I, this this just made sense for me to come in and go into into army medicine. What the what what is surprising, and I think I hope you get into this, is why, like you guys, did I spend one day longer than I had to? That's the that's always the issue. Yeah, that's always the issue. Yeah. So in 1975, you then completed, after medical school, you then obtained a PhD in 1975 to 79, but also at the same time, it looks like you were doing your medicine training and then followed by your hematology training. Tell us about that sequence of events and also what a hematologist does in support of battlefield medicine. Well, well, it's probably not easy to discern from the CV, but in my first year of medical school, I went to the University of Michigan. It was a very large school at the time. It was one of those other times when we anticipated a shortage of physicians. And so I think my class was well over 200. And having spent a lot of time in classrooms with, I assume like you all, with, with uh, hundreds of my closest friends writing down you know, reams of notes on organic chemistry and the like, I was disappointed to get to medical school and find that it was just an extension of the same experience. And by chance, I, had, I, I got into a, a dual major in anthropology and zoology because I became interested in high altitude acclimatization, indigenous natives in South America. I, I just thought, found it fascinating. I was working in a hematology lab in a clinical hospital in Ann Arbor, Michigan, in the community hospital at St. Joe's. And, and I, I knew a fair amount about red blood cells and oxygen transport. But, but as I began to study these high-altitude um, populations who lived in the Andes and Himalayas and things, it just fascinated me that there were these adaptations that, that humans go through that allow them to accommodate and acclimatize to high altitude. And I walked into a laboratory at the University of Michigan in my first year of a professor that was working on just that subject. How does hemoglobin, how does a red blood cell adapt to high altitude? And um, that was shortly or very, if not at the same time, around the time that the Chinese and the Indians in Central Asia were fighting one another at very high altitudes in the Himalayas. And there was there was huge problems with climatization for altitude and the like. And so money became available through the NIH and through military research to go back to your question about hematology, to, to say what, what governs how humans can survive and can adapt to high altitude. And so this lab, in addition to doing other things, was also studying high altitude acclimatization in, in uh, Colorado, up at Leadville, the highest incorporated city at 10,000 feet and, and on Pikes Peak at 14,000 feet. So I started doing research with them to kind of keep my interest in medical school, quite honestly. I, I hate to admit that I, I might have dropped out of medical school. I just found it so mind-numbing. But this laboratory and the work that George Brewer, who was his name at the time, just, just lost him last in his 90th um, years. It just intrigued me and, and kept me engaged. And so after a year or so of working with him, I started an MD-PhD program that was interspersed throughout my medical school. I did uh, two years of medical school and then stepped out for a year, did my prelim work in human genetics and then population genetics and molecular biology and all that stuff, and then took my prelim exams that and then went back into my third year rotations. And in my fourth year, going to a school that did a lot of research. I was permitted actually in my fourth year to do a lot of research as an elective and a fewer number of clinical rotations. And then I stayed after I was awarded the MD. I stayed for another year and finished my, my uh, PhD work. My PhD work eventually became was on sickle cell disease. We became interested in hemoglobin problems and, and sickle cell was one of the problems that we were faced, uh, especially in the Detroit area and, and around it. So I, I, I was working on an animal model of sickle cell disease. Finished that laboratory work and then went into my residency at Duke in internal medicine. By then, I was pretty sure I was going to be an internist because it was related to my the interest that I had in, in blood disorders. And I wrote my PhD thesis while I was in my residency and fellowship. I, I have no idea how I did that. I mean, this is... Don't ask me any questions about that. It 
it's impossible to put myself in the mindset of working as we did at Duke and, and then writing a PhD. So my PhD was awarded in 79, but the work was completed in about 76, 77. So as far as the contributions of hematology, I've already referred to some, but the, the, the army and the military played a huge role in, in for example, blood transfusion, I think this, and, and being a vascular surgeon, I think you can extend that beyond simply blood disorders into all the work that vascular surgeons have done. I mean, vascular surgery really got, for all intents and purposes, it's, it's start in large measure because of the work that was done in World War II and in Korea, especially advanced in Vietnam as well. But some of the very first replacement arteries and, and the like were developed as a consequence of war wounds. And, I, and I'm pretty sure I'm about that because I've been down to Baylor to see the, the, the collection of materials and historic collection that they have down there. There's a testimonial to that. Yeah, the triad of... Yeah, the, the amazing things. The Bakey, not only did he develop, did you, did you ever hear the story about why they used Dacron? Well, I knew he bought it from the Macy's or something, J.C. Penney's. It was the only, it was the only one available. I mean, it was just by chance. It turned out to be ideal, but I think it was one of the only synthetic plastics available that he could get. And he went, went to the local hardware store or something like that and got Dacron. They really put together a museum down there for Dr. DeBakey and they have his original desk. They have his, some of his operating uh, room equipment and they have some of his original background graphs. It's just fa fascinating to, to what, and, and, and he helped revolutionize field medicine with the modular field hospital. So, so let's stay a little bit on the theme of research. After you finish your, your fellowship, you went on to work at the Walter Reed Institute of Research um, as a research hematologist. And then later in your career, you came back and commanded the U.S. Army Medical Research and Materiel Command. Can you tell us how important is medical research in the military? How, is impo how important is research? It's just, it's so vital. Uh, military research and research under the auspices of military funding and guidance has been a strong part of our portfolio of military medicine and health, certainly going back into uh, World War II. Everybody knows Walter Reed. Walter Reed was one of the seminal names. I always like to think about Walter Reed's mentor and his commander, uh, who at the time was the Surgeon General, George Miller Sternberg. Now, Sternberg was uh, an army physician who came in during the Civil War and was compelled to join because of his interest in the ethics of the war and the importance of freeing slaves, was captured at the First Battle of Bull Run and made a deal with the Confederate cavalry that captured him that he would stay in this uh, small church and continue to take care of patients, both uh, blue and gray, for three days. They wanted, him to, they wanted him to remain a prisoner for the duration of the war. And he said, no, nah, if you don't guard me, I'm not going to do that. I'm not that chivalrous but I'll agree to stay here without a Confederate guard for three days. And on the third day, by then they'd put a guard, but it wasn't that competent. He went out to collect firewood. He escaped through the woods. He crossed the Potomac River and rejoined the Union, Union Army. He went on to, to be posted out in the West, fought in the Indian Wars, the, the Pierce Ness Wars. But he became one of the first microbiologists in the U.S., if, and certainly in the Army, carried a microscope everywhere he went and became an expert in yellow fever, which at the time was a devastating disease that affected the Gulf and Philadelphia and New York, the huge, you know, huge epidemics that with a mortality of 20 to 40%, if you can imagine, almost shut down one of the constitutional conventions in uh, Philadelphia in the in 1790s. And he was the one who really understood that they had to resolve the problem of transmission of yellow fever after Cuba and the Spanish-American War, and he was the one who sent then Walter Reed to Cuba. Walter Reed went and designed some elegant, simple experiments to demonstrate that, in fact, yellow fever, although they didn't know the causative agent, they had no way of isolating <clears throat> these bugs at that time. But he was able to discern that this was transmitted by a mosquito. If you prevented the mosquito from biting, even if you were in the same hut, with very sick and dying yellow fever patients, sleeping in their soiled 
bedclothes and pajamas that you wouldn't get yellow fever unless you were bitten by a mosquito because they'd taken a, a, a mosquito net down between the patients and the, and the subjects. He was also one of the first to use informed consent, paid $100 gold to volunteers who volunteered to be bitten by yellow fever infected mosquitoes or to sleep in these hutments. And that, and that informed consent is still available at the National Library of Medicine, designed by another army doctor we could talk about some other time. But that research and the research that preceded it, uh, research by people like uh, Jonathan Letterman at Civil War, who was first to devise that you had to forward place hospitals and, and do triage, but more importantly, you had to put your best surgeons forward, not just simply people who had been appointed by the state's you know, governor or something uh, who you had rank but had no competence. So you had to put the ambulance service in the hands of the physicians or the ambulance drivers who were contractors would run away from the battle on, and steal the whiskey that was used to cut the bitterness of the quinine that they were using. So it, it was really people like Jonathan Letterman, William Beaumont at the turn of the 19th century, who observed gastrointestinal digestion in the belly of a French trapper, and Alexis Saint-Martin, when he discharged his uh, musket accidentally into his gut and, and left the fistula that he could study digestion. So all of these army physicians and others became the roots of so much important basic science, but also applied science for us. And, it, and that's been then um, a part of our history. It's estimated that as many as a third or a half of all of the vaccines in use in the world today were, designed, were developed by military physicians, principally the army, because it's such an important debilitating influence on troops in, in foreign environments. And we've done the same thing as you all have seen in these wars, 20 years of active combat. And yet we have dynamically changed the face of trauma medicine on the fly uh, through the, the use and empiric observations about the use of uh, tourniquets on the battlefield, uh, um, changes. I mean, when young doc, what, what did we do? We put two 18-gauge needles in and turned up placated ringers or, or normal saline at the at top speed and, and into a, a traumatized patient. Now we know that that blows off you know clots and, and leads to earlier deaths. And so we do hypovolemic resuscitation with with hypertonic uh, you know fluids. We've done so many things to advance survival on the battlefield and improvements in rehabilitation uh, back from the front. It's so vital to the forest. The other thing that people need to appreciate is that we're blessed with having just an incredibly talented population of, and community of research scientists in the United States and around the world. But the, the military stays focused on uh, a group that oftentimes is not lucrative for big pharma or other groups to work on, and that is uh, the deployed soldier, sailor, and Marine Coast Guardsmen who may not have an advocate for a niche kind of product. Traveler's vaccine for malaria used to be a problem. I mean, the, the Gates people were not interested in an expensive, maybe multi-injectable uh, vaccine against malaria, but we needed that for, for our troops and have, have subsequently gotten everybody interested in that. The same is true for virtually everything that I've talked about in trauma care. We advanced HIV vaccine development for the same reason. We've been applying things and science to problems that we see in the here and now to try to get rapid answers to those questions. And it may, big pharma and others may not be interested in that simply because there's no market for it. But we, through what we call translational science, are always looking to take that basic science and try to push it into uses out there where it can make a difference. So you did your entirety of your education in the undergrad, medical school, residency outside of the military system. And then you have had multiple avenues in which you have led graduate medical education within the military. That is a, a program director. You were the director of medical education for the Office of the Surgeon General and MedCom. And given that you have had the perspective of being trained and outside the system and then leading within the system, 
How would you say that military medicine should think about the interactions between training people in the civilian sector versus training people in the military? It kind of takes us back to one of the opening comments I made, which is, why do we stay one day longer than we intended to? And especially for someone like me who had all of my credentials essentially developed before I came into uniform. Let me also tap into the story that I asked if I could give. So you're right. I'm commissioned in 1970. I go to medical school. The Army says to me on, on commissioning, hey, listen, you can do whatever you want to do for a little while. We really don't need a lieutenant at this point. What do you want to do? And I said, I'd really like to go to medical school. Okay, hey, listen, we'll even send you to medical school. They didn't have an HPSB program at the time, but they understood that the so-called Barry plan where, where physicians were paid, were allowed to go into graduate medical education and then, and then delayed coming in later was going to end. And I said, guys, with all due respect, I, I was raised in the military. I am not going to spend one minute in uniform longer than I have to spend, which is now four years because I have obligated through my scholarship to, to go in for four years. So I would rather pay for my own medical school. And, and I did. I, I, I paid for my own medical school. I paid for my own graduate school through a combination of grants and, and scholarships and, and out of pocket. In fact, I, did, I paid off my last medical school loan while I was still in uniform. I think I was a colonel or a brigadier general. And about two years, three years into medical school, then having been interested in doing a PhD, I called the then office of uh, you know personnel management that at the time was within the Army Medical Department. It was called AMED PERSA, Army Medical Department Personnel, down at Buzzard Point near Anacostia Naval Yard. And I said, hey, listen, I got interested in going to graduate school. Is it okay if I go to graduate school? And I said, who are you? And I said, I'm, I'm Eric Schoemaker. I'm out here. In med- oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And we got a file on you. Like, sure. Go ahead. Go to, go to graduate school. Let us know how that goes. So I went to graduate school and medical school. I got through those in 1975 and was doing my research year. And I said, I'm, I'm going to finish my research. I have an MD, but I don't have the clinical training to allow me to practice medicine. I probably need to come into the Army to train as an internist in the Army. So I, again, I called the AMED and they said, um, well, we're not obligated to train you. And I, and I said, I know that, but don't you want me to come in? On my own, I should also say, I did a trip from Ann Arbor, Michigan down to Washington, D.C. and met the training program director for internal medicine at Walt Reed at the time. He was a lieutenant colonel. His name was Ron Blank. And uh, <laughs> Lieutenant Colonel Ron Blank gave me a tour through the hospital. I said, hey, listen, you look like a pretty good candidate. Yeah, if you're interested in coming here as an intern, we can do that. I said, great. This is the fall of 1975. I said, I'll be done with my research on in, next summer in 76, and I can come then. And he said, oh, wait, wait a minute. Are we talking about next summer? I said, yes, sir, we are. He said, no, no, no. We've already filled our intern class for next summer. We do that very early so that people who don't get matched in military programs can go into civilian match. I thought we were talking about the summer of 77. I said, no, no, sir. I meant so. He says, well, I don't know what to do at this point, Eric. I mean, you'll have to call a med person and see. So I called the med person back. I said, they've filled their classes for internships. Um, what should I do? And, they, and, and, and the fellow said, go find yourself a residency, train yourself for the first certifiable specialty, which would have been internal medicine, three years, and then call us back. I said, okay. So I I got matched at Duke, signed a contract for three years. The first year ended, I had finished my internship, and I got a letter from the Army. It said, welcome to the United States Army. You've had an internship now. You can be a general medical officer. So I called this number back again. I said, hey, guys, you told me I could stay for a residency, and now I'm being brought in after one year and what can I do after only a year of training? They said, well, we have, we, you know, we've run out of docs now. We really need GMOs with general medical officers. And I can't believe that someone told you that you could stay for a full residency. Let me go get your file. And I heard this, this person, not the same person I had talked to before in this anonymous office in Washington, DC, shuffling through paper files. 
And then he comes back on the phone. He says, well, son of a gun, look at this. Here written in the margin of your file in pencil, it says, given permission to complete his first residency before we bring him in. Okay, if that's what they told you, you can do that. And hung up. <laughs> and I turned to my friends and I said, can you believe this? I, I just called because I just wanted some clarity. I figured I'm toast. I'm coming in to serve as a general medical officer. And, and they're following their word. I'm telling you something I hope has been your experience too. And, and if not, at least you live by the same principles. I said to myself, this is a group of people that does what they say they're going to do. That's, that's called integrity. This is a group of people with very high integrity. And from then on, and that was 1975, the fall of 1975, every job I've held, including the jobs that you just mentioned, I've always said to people, if you treat the United States Army, the military, any large bureaucracy like a machine, it will treat you like a machine. But if you treat it as human beings who are trying to do their best, you'd be surprised how often uh, you'll be treated as a human being as well. And I've, I hope that all of us who've worked together and certainly those that, like Doug, who, you know, with whom I worked when I was in uniform, have adhered to that principle that we do what we say we do. Now, we can't always do what people want us to do. And you tell them that, hey, I'm sorry, I can't, I can't meet that desire. But we'll just work with you as best we can to do what, what is best for the organization and you at the same time. So I did come in through the grace of God and, and people like Jay Sanford, who had heard about me, Jim Leonard, who's the chief of medicine at USU at the time, and others, and the grapevine. I was known as a hematologist and a researcher, so I was sent to the Walter Reed Army Institute of Research, which at the time was on the campus of Walter Reed. I have to say that that initial experience at the Institute of Research was not entirely positive for me. I was still a young researcher. I did not have a mentor that probably could have helped me channel my behavior better. And what I really missed more than anything else was clinical medicine. I really enjoyed it. By that time, I'd done three years in largely a clinical environment at Duke as an internist, as a hematologist. And in those days, you could do two years of a residency in internal medicine and then a first year fellowship, and it counted as your third year of your residency as a short course. And because I had done a PhD in a yeah, hematology-related specialty, they gave me credit for a year of hematology on top of that. So I was able to go through medical school, get a PhD, get an internal medicine residency, and a hematology fellowship between the age of like 20 and 30, I mean, in about eight years and get out and start working. But what I really missed more than anything else was teaching and, and clinical medicine. And I made friends across the street in Walter Reed and the chief of medicine at the time, McKellog Hunt, needed a deputy who could also be the program director in medicine for him. We had a medical medicine program with about 15 residents per year, about 45 to 50 residents. And so he offered me a job and I said, I really, I really miss teaching. I miss being on the wards. I think I, I really would like to do that. And I did. Went over there and turned down the position after about two years in the position at Walter Reed Army Institute of Research and went back into clinical medicine. Had just a wonderful time. And that answers the question why I stayed a day longer. And by that time, a couple of really important things had happened. Number one is I got a melanoma. A year into my time in the Army, I had been a, a runner for years and years and years. I had been running between five and 10 miles a day for pretty much all the time I was in residency and fellowship and, and beyond. And I often ran without socks because it was just too much to put on. I didn't use long pants. But more importantly, as a kid, I was raised for four or five years in Panama where my dad was assigned to as an artilleryman to protect the Panama Canal. And we didn't have any sunscreens in those days. We were perpetually burned. And 20 years almost to the day after that occurred, I developed a stage one melanoma on my leg. It was resected by an army dermatologist who essentially saved my life. And he thought it was a, a neurofibroma. It was an amelanomic melanoma. It didn't have any color to it and looked like it was not going to be a problem, but it was growing and it was starting to bleed. And so he took it off just to 
keep me from hitting it with my shoe when I ran on my ankle. And um, son of a gun, it was it was it was a Clark Level Three at the time, amyloid melanoma. I went into a treatment program again at Duke, immunotherapy program with killed tumor cells and BCG with injections that were supposed to stimulate my immune system for about a year and a half, and got these big weeping chronic abscesses. But the army said, well, you're a year into your obligation, but you can leave if you want to. You have an unfitting condition. I said, well, by this time, I had really fallen in love with the army and army medicine. So I, I stayed and went through a medical board and was found unfit, but they overruled that and allowed me to stay. And, and I'm still alive. So obviously my melanoma didn't kill me. And I, I went back into teaching and doing clinical medicine because that really, really was. And and above all, what really had attracted me more than anything else were people like you guys. I mean, men and women that I, I had been at the, some of the top medical schools and medical institutions in the country and in the world. And yet they have their warts just like any place does. They have their bureaucratic problems just like any place does. The thing that really struck me about working with people like you was you didn't know how good you were. You weren't always crowing about it. It was like dating a woman who didn't know how beautiful she was. And it was so sobering and so refreshing to work with such top-notch clinicians and other uh, folks, nurses, and, uh, pharmacists, and, and, and PAs and others who were so good at what they did, worked in, under such sometimes lean conditions in some really austere environments, and just were at the top of their game. It was just remarkable. And I found it very hard to think about leaving at that point, even though I, I could have easily. And when my four years was up, by that time, you know, I was pretty hooked. And I never really fully committed to staying for 34, almost 34 years in uniform. Even my older brother said, who came in through the ROTC too, when he got his fourth star, my older brother said, I think I'm going to make this a career. And I, I was of the same mind. This was a remarkable experience. And I didn't know where it was going, but as long as the Army gave me good jobs and, the, and as long as I was challenged and satisfied by the learning, I was going to stay. Long, long answer to a short question, but I, I wanted to get a couple of thoughts in there before we had to finish. So after the late 90s, your career trajectory shifted somewhat to more operational strategic command type jobs. You went to the War College and kind of moved on from your academic medicine career and changed gears a little bit. Tell us what was going on in your mind that, that brought you to that career choice. I, I met my wife at Walter Reed in the mid-80s. She was an Army nurse. We got married. And she was working 12-hour shifts at night in those days as a young lieutenant. Said I didn't join the Army. She came in as an ROTC cadet, too. And I didn't come into the Army in order to, to see the hallways of Walter Reed uh, at night only. I, I want to see more of the world. So we went uh, to Europe. And we went to Heidelberg, Germany, and the, at the time, the 7th Medical Command, which was the higher headquarters for all of European care. At that time, there were about a million patients of DOD beneficiaries in Europe, 250,000 soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, and and their families. And we had 65 clinics in the Army at that time and 11 hospitals. And I was the medical consultant in Heidelberg. Um, and then after two years, I went to Launchstuhl. And just sh shortly after I got to Launchstuhl, the first Gulf War started. And that probably was the thing that changed me, Doug, is I was the deputy commander for clinical services. In those days, we only had two deputies. And it was a commander of the hospital. And then there was a clinical deputy. That was me and an administrative deputy. And so I had a responsibility for all the docs and the nurses and the pharmacy and all of that stuff. And the war came along and we were the primary casualty receiving hospital during the war. And I was exposed to a series of, of opportunities and questions and challenges that I had never seen as 
as a service chief or as a department chief before. And that was how do you take care of a whole community? And then how do you turn on a dime to not only care for 80 to 100,000 people in the in the, in the Longstuhl, Ramstein, Kaiserslautern area, but then how do you take care of casualties or potential casualties coming out of the first Gulf War? We anticipated upwards to 1,000 to 1,500 casualties being brought into Europe at the time. All of the models in those days of tank warfare in the desert coming out of Israel and the Sinai and Jordan were devastating uh, injuries, devastating um, disease. So how do you do that? How do you, how do you take an, an army hospital in, in the Cold War peace and convert it into a casualty receiving hospital with a thousand beds that, that's capable of doing the throughput that we see now after 20 years of war in, in OEF and OIF. When I then left to go back to the States uh, in 92, I became a chief of medicine at Madigan up in the Northwest. And I have to tell you, I wasn't a very good chief because by that time I had seen a perspective that I, that I never had seen before. And that was followed by running GME, as you guys talked about earlier, running graduate medical education and all of medical education. And I saw a strategic level of thinking that when I got back down into, you know, a more parochial role, I couldn't do it anymore. Uh, you know, once you break through and have that perspective, it's very, very difficult to go back in my experience and do that. On top of that, I, I began to observe that if we didn't take leadership roles, somebody else was going to do it for us. And they wouldn't necessarily do it the way we would have wanted to do, who had been trained to take care of people and who were compelled and passionate about that. So to, to answer your question directly, I said to the, to the, the Army Medicine, listen, I'll hang out here, especially if you give me a command, which I got at Fort Carson, Colorado, after being the director of medical education. If you're going to allow me to do that and then send me to the War College, I'll continue to do leadership jobs. But the commitment that I was going to uh, try to secure the things that I had found that were really important. One was medical education. I was, I was absolutely convinced I had done enough work when I was directing medical education on, on how the force is built, how it's maintained, throughput, things that recruit and, and, and retain people to know that medical education is vital, medical research, but also coupling it with practical challenges and applications in field and operational medicine. So that was the change that made it. And, and it was largely, and, and I can't tell you how much this deviates from what I intended to do when I came in to medicine in general. I was going to be an academic clinician scientist. I was going to be what all my mentors were like. I was going to be a chief of a department in an academic medical center or university uh, teaching center uh, doing some very sophisticated research. And I found that that just wasn't uh, what uh, I was passionate about. The Army really changed my thinking about that. You had mentioned in our correspondence that you were involved in a project that was started by then Surgeon General General Lanou, kind of partnering with a Institute for Alternative Futures, looking ahead to 2020 initially, and then ultimately looking ahead to 2039. To me, that sounds like an interesting project to be involved in. It's just terrific. It was a uh... Sid Lanou, who we just lost about two years ago, was a true visionary. He was an orthopedic surgeon, Vietnam era. I did an oral history of him, very similar to what you're doing here, but expanded. If you ever have a chance to read his oral history, I would strongly recommend it. It's available through the Army Medical Department history. He was a sole child of a highly dysfunctional family. He had an illiterate alcoholic father who was a drop forge uh, mechanic, uh, and a machinist. His mother was a housekeeper, and and she was probably, in the very least, schizophreniform, if not wholly schizophrenic by the time he was an adult. She, he used to say she would talk through the TV to the TV, and she would turn it off when they were in conversations because she was convinced people were listening through the TV to her. She insisted that he go to private schools, which she paid for through her custodial work, and that he go to Harvard. 
And later in life, he asked her, why did you insist I go to Harvard? And she said, are there any other colleges in the United States? <laughs> she didn't know that there was a, how many there were. So he went to Harvard on a dual National Merit Scholarship. He was, I think, a, a National Merit Scholar in uh, math and physics. And then from then went to Yale University and got uh, his MD, also on scholarship, as I recall. This guy was an amazing visionary. He was, he was he had many, many challenges, and not the least of which he was sort of a social dyslexic if you talk to people who ever worked with him uh, or if you had contact with him. But he really was tapped into where we were going. He was the first to really get into the electronic health record back in the 70s and 80s. He was really, for all intents and purposes, the father of uh, telemedicine within the, within the military. And well, as the chief of medical education, running all of CME and GME and undergraduate medical education for him as a colonel, I worked in a split-based office. Now, this is in 1995. I worked in a split-based office between San Antonio and Washington, D.C., where we had computers with, with death-side cameras. This is before email. This is what this guy was doing. He envisioned, especially after the fall of the of the Berlin Wall, that we needed to understand where we were headed in the future in warfare and in medicine, the intersection of these two things. And so he stimulated and chartered um, a futures project, which eventually was picked up by the whole health affairs and by the entire military health contracted with a, a bunch of groups, but one of them is a, a group that I've stayed con in contact with um, since then and, and become close friends with many of them, uh, the Institute for Alternative Futures, which envisioned uh, scenarios where you envision the future out in, in a time when you're not even going to be around or you're not invested in it. That's why we went to 2020, because we knew that we weren't going to be in uniform in 2020 if we were lieutenants, colonel, and colonels and majors back in, in 1990. Uh, five or so. What was going to happen? Who predicted the collapse of the Soviet Union? Was it the CIA? No, it wasn't. Was it the U.S. military? No, it wasn't. It was demographers. It was demographers who saw life expectancy begin to plummet within Russia and the Soviet Union. It was demographers who were looking at rates of alcoholism and hospitalization for that. It was demographers who were looking at economic uh, indicators. And so they taught us how to look at the news and how to look at things emerging that were going to be indicators of where we're headed. And the result of that work, which was just fascinating, was one of the first in a sense, online chat groups. They organized an online chat group before they even existed in the public's use. And we had these long-term, remotely conducted, about a thousand of us, conversations about what is, what is health going to look like in the 21st century? How are we going to define health? Uh, what is warfare going to look like in the 21st century? Is it going to be like the first Gulf War, where people line up with tanks and shoot at one another from distance? Who would do that? Who would run, I mean, just like the Civil War, why would you conduct a Napoleonic War at a time when you could fire a rifled rifle a mile and you could fire it 300 meters very accurately and, and, and in a deadly fashion? Why would you do that in the 21st century like we did in the middle of the, of the 20th century? And so with the guidance of people like Jim Peake and certainly with General Lanou and others, we came up with scenarios that, quite frankly, some of which resemble what we see today. Dispersed battlefields without fronts and rears. Three-dimensional space that involves the use of, at the time, of a nascent internet. We forecast, the, I mean, the internet was coming into being, but this was going to be an internet, we said, that was probably also going to be used for bad things. I mean, mafias were going to get a hand in their hands on it. Sex traffickers, terrorist groups. We were going to see climate change. We we're going to see population changes. Um, populations were going to cluster around maritime and riverine environments like they do in Jakarta and Bangkok that are going to change how we think about the nature of, of conflict. And 
the force has got to be far more modular and it's got to focus its energy more at the point of injury because that's where we're going to change survival. And that was uh, a lot of Jim Peake's contribution as well. So that changed my whole thinking about how we needed to look at the 21st century. Again, um, the product of far-sighted people within the uniform in the military, coupled with other futures work that was going on within the militaries as well. So in that model, when they projected 2039, how did they envision military medicine? Well, again, this wasn't about predicting the future as much as it was looking at various scenarios from the most undesirable toward the most desirable. And what were some of the leverage points that as you saw yourself drifting toward an undesirable future, that you might be able to pull or influence that would move you more in a desirable fashion. So for example, as Jim Peake did after the first Gulf War and with the help of futures thinking, if you don't do a better job with your combat medic, even though we did very well in the first Gulf War on guided wounds rates because there were very few casualties, Peake envisioned that that was an anomaly and that we had to arm our medics with far more sophisticated equipment and knowledge. And he started the 68 whiskey conversion, if you recall, before the OEF OIF began. In fact, if he had started it after, it would have taken us five, eight years to do the transition, which is what it took. So he started it back in the mid to late 90s. Uh, When I was the fifth corps surgeon and the commander of the 30th Med Brigade in Europe, we were convincing the army in Europe to adopt, to absorb the cost of converting the second largest MOS in the army. After the 11 Bravo infantrymen, the second largest MOS is the medic. And we convinced the army to absorb the cost of training a much more sophisticated and capable medic at a time when the army could not see why would we want to do that? We, we had no need to. They saw that we needed to. And by God, it, it, it happened just in time because as the as OIF, OEF um, took off, we had much more capable medics out there, 68 whiskeys to do it in all compos. What we envisioned by 2039 was a combination of things. First of all, what we envisioned in the the 90s in terms of medical care, surgeons were gonna, were less and less gonna be cutting the skin. We we all talked about Star Trek. You remember when Jim Kirk and the Star Trek crew landed on on an alien planet, one of the criteria they used for whether they were in a primitive or a sophisticated civilization is does the surgeon cut the skin? If the surgeon cuts the skin, they're in a primitive civilization. And we've become evolutionarily far more like the sophisticated civilization of Star Trek with with vascular procedures that are conducted through catheters, remote. I mean, even the use of uh, laparoscopic surgery, which was emerging, uh, you know, in the um, early 90s, really was was a foretelling of how that was going to happen. The use of nanotechnology, microscopic machines, molecular machines that would be doing things to alter the immune system, for example, in a sophisticated fashion to, to allow us to resist the disease. I mean, and, and we're seeing work on nanotechnology at this point. We envision the emergence of global health threats because of porous borders and and large populations that we're going to begin to encroach upon forests and wildernesses. And because of the crowding and the economic decay that was going to occur, I mean, disease accompanies economic and social decay and disorder. It's one of the consequences of that. It's one of the reasons that the military got invested in trying to stabilize democracies and so that disease and armed conflict could be reduced. That almost happened to us in the Ebola epidemic in West Africa, that that became so destabilized that martial law almost had to be imposed. It's one of the reasons that the US military, in addition to providing strategic lift, who was over there was to help if necessary, 
to stabilize a destabilizing um, a violent environment, as you may recall. Those are the things that we look at the, in the future. So would you say that when 9-11 happened and the sequela of OIF and OEF happened, were we ready for that? Well, I don't know if we were. I think certain groups were. When we finished the first couple of years of the Futures Project, one was devoted to the overall nature of warfare and the like and how the military had to look, military medicine had to look. Another one was on nanotechnology. But after that first year, the, the, the general officer champion, every year there was a different general officer champion, Army the first year, second year was... I think the Air Force and the third year was the Navy or, or vice versa. That first year, Pat Scully, who was the chief of the dental corps at the time, said, turned to me and said, I was a commander of, a, of the hospital at Fort Carson at the time. He said, Eric, this futures thing has a lot to say about what warfare is going to look like, um, how it's going to be in small distributive forces using asymmetrical warfare. And there's one group that does that right now. And that's the Special Operations Command. We really ought to go to Special Operations Command and brief them and see if what we have to say makes sense to them. Well, by chance, my brother was the was commanding general, was the, what they used to call the SINC, the commander-in-chief of the Special Operations Command in, uh, in Tampa. And so we went down and briefed him and his staff one day about the Futures Project. And they said, yep, what you have to say makes a lot of sense. In fact, that's what we're preparing for. So there were elements of the U.S. military, Doug, who were ready in a sense for that kind of warfare. They applied some of that during the first Gulf War. In fact, the SCUDs were not found by the U.S. Air Force. The SCUDs were not destroyed by the Patriots. The SCUDs were identified and found in large measure by special operators on the ground who then could target the, the Air Force to take out take them out. So there was uh, there was already an emerging capacity to deliver in the in, in OEF and OIF. I, I don't know that that was had completely uh, penetrated all of the U.S. military, but I'll tell you, when I saw those guys from the 10th Mountain Division with night vision goggles and knee pads and elbow pads with shortened M4 rifles at the opening of, of the Iraq of the Afghan war, I said to myself and my buddies, doesn't this look a lot like we are converting to that future army that we talked about? You have been listening to part one of our War Docs interview with retired Army Lieutenant General Dr. Eric Schoomaker. We hope you get an opportunity to listen to part two of the interview with this true military medical hero on Wardock's podcast when it becomes available. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Wardock's, the military medicine podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please rate and review this podcast and share our show with your contacts on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests and how to become a member of Team Wardox on our website, wardoxpodcast.com. That's wardoxpodcast, one word, dot com. Thanks so much for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardox has you covered. Spread the word.